0: Chapter One, Part One of Adventures of the Infallible Godall. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Winston Tharp. Adventures of the Infallible Godall by Frederick Irving Anderson. The Infallible Godall, Part One. Oliver Armiston never was much of a sportsman with a rod or gun, though he could do fancy work with a pistol in a shooting gallery. He had, however, one game from which he derived the utmost satisfaction. Whenever he went traveling, which was often, he invariably caught his trains by the tip of the tail, so to speak, and hung on until he could climb aboard. In other words, he believed in close connections he had a theory that more valuable dollars and cents time and good animal heat are wasted warming seats and stations waiting for trains than by missing them the sum of joy to his methodical mind was to halt the slamming gates of the last fraction of the last second with majestic upraised hand and to stroll aboard his parlor car with studied deliberation while the train crew were gnashing their teeth in rage and swearing to get even with the gate man for letting him through yet mr armiston never missed a train a good many of them tried to miss him but none ever succeeded he reckoned time and distance so nicely that it really seemed as if his trains had nothing else half so important as waiting until mr oliver armiston got aboard on this particular june day he was due in new haven at two if he failed to get there at two o'clock he could very easily arrive at three but an hour is 60 minutes, and a minute is 60 seconds, and further Mr. Armiston, having passed his word that he would be there at two o'clock, surely would be. On this particular day, by the time Armiston finally got to the Grand Central, the train looked like an odds-on favorite. In the first place, he was still in his bed at an hour when another and less experienced traveler would have been watching the clock in the station waiting room. In the second place. After kissing his wife in that absent-minded manner characteristic of true love, he became entangled in a Broadway traffic rush at the first corner. Scarcely was he extricated from this when he ran into a socialist mass meeting at Union Square. It was due only to the wits of a chauffeur that the taxicab was extricated with very little damage to the surrounding human scenery. But our man of method did not fret. Instead, he buried himself in his book, a treatise on cause and effect, which at that moment was lulling him with this soothing sentiment. There is no such thing as accident. The so-called accidents of everyday life are due to the preordained action of correlated causes, which is inevitable and over which man has no control. This was comforting, but not much to the point, when Oliver Armistead looked up and discovered he had reached 23rd Street and had come to a halt a sixty-foot truck with an underslung burden consisting of a sixty-ton steel girder had at this point suddenly developed weakness in its off hind-wheel and settled down on the pavement across the right-of-way like a tired elephant this of course was not an accident it was due to a weakness in the construction of that wheel a weakness that had from the beginning been destined to block street-cars and taxicabs at this particular spot at this particular hour Mr. Armiston dismounted and walked the block. Here he hailed a 2nd taxicab, and soon was spinning north again at a fair speed, albeit the extensive building operations in Fourth Avenue had made the street well-nigh impassable. The roughness of the pavement merely shook up his digestive apparatus, and gave it zest for the fine luncheon he was promising himself the minute he stepped aboard his train. His new chauffeur got lost three times in the maze of traffic around the Grand Central Station, this however was only human seeing that the railroad company changed the map of forty-second street every twenty-four hours during the course of the building of its new terminal mr armiston at length stepped from his taxicab gave his grip to a porter and paid the driver from a huge roll of bills this same roll was no sooner transferred back to his pocket than a nimble-fingered pickpocket removed it this again was not an accident that pickpocket had been waiting there for the last hour for that roll of bills it was preordained, inevitable, and Oliver Armiston had just thirty seconds to catch his train by the tail and climb aboard. He smiled contentedly to himself. It was not until he called for his ticket that he discovered his loss. For a full precious second he gazed at the hand that came away empty from his money pocket and then, I find I left my purse at home, he said with a grand air he knew how to assume on occasion. My name is Mr. Oliver Armiston. Now Oliver Armiston was a name to conjure with. "'I don't doubt it,' said the ticket agent dryly. "'Mr. Andrew Carnegie was here yesterday begging car fare to 125th Street, and Mr. John D. Rockefeller quite frequently drops in and leaves his dollar watch in Hawk. Next!' And the ticket agent glared at the man blocking the impatient line and told him to move on. Armiston flushed crimson. He glanced at the clock. For once in his life, he was about to experience that awful feeling of missing his train. For once in his life, he was about to be robbed of that delicious sensation of hypnotizing the gatekeeper and walking majestically down that train platform that extends northward under the train shed, a considerable part of the distance toward Yonkers. Twenty seconds. Armiston turned round, still holding his ground, and glared concentrated malice at the man next in line. That man was in a hurry. In his hand he held a bundle of bills. For a second the thief instinct that is latent in us all suggested itself to Armiston. There, within reach of his hand, was the money, the precious paltry dollar bills that stood between him and his train. It scared him to discover that he, an upright and honest citizen, was almost in the act of grabbing them like a common pickpocket. Then a truly remarkable thing happened. The man thrust his handful of bills at Armiston. "'The only way I can raise this blockade is to bribe you,' he said, returning Armiston's glare. "'Here, take what you want, and give the rest of us a chance.'" With the alacrity of a blind beggar miraculously cured by the sight of much money, Armiston grabbed the handful, extracted what he needed for his ticket, and thrust the rest back into the waiting hand of his unknown benefactor. He caught the gate by a hair. So did his unknown friend. Together they walked down the platform, each matching the other's leisurely pace with his own. They might have been two potentates, so deliberately did they catch this train. Armiston would have liked very much to thank this person, but the other presented so forbidding an exterior that it was hard to find a point of attack. By force of habit Armiston boarded the parlor-car, quite forgetting he did not have money for a seat. So did the other. The unknown thrust a Bill at the porter. "'Get me two chairs,' he said. "'One is for this gentleman.' Once inside and settled, Armiston renewed his efforts to thank this strange person. That person took a card from his pocket and handed it to Armiston. "'Don't run away with a foolish idea,' he said tartly, "'that I have done you a service, willingly. "'You are making me miss my train, and I took this means of bribing you "'to get you out of my way. "'That is all, sir. "'At your leisure you may send me your cheque for the trifle.' "'A most extraordinary person,' said Armiston to himself. "'Let me give you my card,' he said to the other. "'As to the service rendered, you are welcome to your own ideas on that. "'For my part, I am very grateful.' The unknown took the proffered card and thrust it in his waistcoat pocket without glancing at it. He swung his chair around and opened a magazine, displaying a pair of broad, unneighborly shoulders. This was rather disconcerting to Armiston, who was accustomed to have his card act as an open sesame. Damn his impudence, he said to himself. He makes me for a mendicant. I'll make copy of him. This was the popular author's way of getting even with those who offended his tender sensibilities. Two things worried Armiston. One was his luncheon, or rather the absence of it, and the other was his neighbor. This neighbor, now that Armiston had a chance to study him, was a young man, well set up. He had a fine bronzed face that was not half so surly as his manner he was now buried up to his ears in a magazine oblivious of everything around him even the dining-car porter who strode down the aisle and announced the first call to lunch in the dining-car i wonder what this fellow is reading said Armiston to himself he peeped over the man's shoulder and was interested at once for the stranger was reading a copy of a magazine called by the vulgar the whited sepulchre it was the pride of this magazine that no man on earth could read it without the aid of a dictionary yet this person seemed to be enthralled. And what was more to the point and vastly pleasing to Armiston, the man was at that moment engrossed in one of Armiston's own effusions. It was one of his crime stories that had won him praise and lucre. It concerned the infallible Godal. These stories were pure reason incarnate in the person of a scientific thief. The plot was invariably so logical that it seemed more like the output of some machine than of a human mind, Of course, the plots were impossible, because the fiction thief had to be an incredible genius to carry out the details. But nevertheless, they were entertaining, fascinating, and dramatic at one and the same time. And this individual read the story through without winking an eyelash, as though the mental effort cost him nothing, and then, to Armiston's delight, turned back to the beginning and read it again. The author threw out his chest and shot his cuffs. It was not often that such unconscious tribute fell to his lot he took the card of his unknown benefactor it read mr j borden benson the towers new york city humph snorted armiston an aristocrat and a snob too at this moment the aristocrat turned in his chair and handed the magazine to his companion all his bad humor was gone are you familiar he asked with this man armiston's work i mean these scientific thief stories that are running now Yes. Oh, oh, yes," sputtered Armiston, hastily putting the other's card away. I, in fact, you know, I take them every morning before breakfast. In a way, this was the truth, for Armiston always began his day's writing before breakfasting. Mr. Benson smiled, a very fine smile at once boyish and sophisticated. Rather a heavy diet early in the morning, I should say, he replied. Have you read this last one, then? Oh, yes," said the delighted author. What do you think of it asked Benson the author puckered his lips? It is on a par with the others he said Yes said Benson thoughtfully I should say the same thing and when we have said that there is nothing left to say they are truly a remarkable product quite unique you know and yet he said frowning at Armiston I believe that this man Armiston is to be ranked as the most dangerous man in the world today "'Oh, I say,' began Armiston. But he checked himself, chuckling. He was very glad Mr. Benson had not looked at his card. "'I mean it,' said the other decidedly. "'And you think so yourself, I fully believe. No thinking man could do otherwise.' "'In just what way? I I must confess, I have never thought of his work as anything but pure invention. It was truly delicious. Armiston would certainly make copy of this person.' i will grant said benson that there is not a thief in the world today clever enough brainy enough to take advantage of the suggestions put forth in these stories but some day there will arise a man to whom they will be as simple as an ordinary blueprint, and he will profit accordingly this magazine by printing these stories is merely furnishing him with his tools showing him how to work and the worst of it is "'Just a minute,' said the author, agreeing for the moment that these stories will be the tools of Armiston's hero in real life some day. How about the popular magazines? They print ten such stories to one of these by Armiston.' "'Ah, my friend,' said Benson, "'you forget one thing. The popular magazines deal with real life, the possible, the usual. And in that very thing they protect the public against sharpers, by exposing the methods of these same sharpers. But with Armiston, no.' Much as I enjoy him as an intellectual treat, I am afraid he didn't finish his sentence. Instead, he fell to shaking his head, as though in amazement, at the devilish ingenuity of the author under discussion. I am certainly delighted, thought that author, that my disagreeable benefactor did not have the good grace to look at my card. This is really most entertaining. And then aloud, and treading on thin ice, I should be very happy to tell Oliver what you say, and see what he has to say about it. Benson's face broke into a wreath of wrinkles. "'Do you know him? Well, I declare, that is a privilege. I heartily wish you would tell him.' "'Would you like to meet him? I'm under obligations to you. I can arrange a little dinner for a few of us.' "'No,' said Benson, shaking his head. "'I would rather go on reading him without knowing him. Authors are so disappointing in real life. He may be some puny, anemic little half-portion with dirty fingernails and all the rest that goes with genius.' "'No offense to your friend. Besides, I am afraid I might quarrel with him. "'Last call for lunch in the dining-car,' sang the porter. Amiston was looking at his fingernails as the porter passed. They were manicured once a day. "'Come lunch with me,' said Benson heartily. "'I should be pleased to have you as my guest. I apologize for being rude to you at the ticket window, but I did want to catch this train mighty bad.' Armiston laughed. "'Well, you have paid my car fare,' he said, "'and I won't deny I am hungry enough to eat a hundred and ten-pound rail. "'I will let you buy me a meal, being penniless.' Benson arose, and as he drew out his handkerchief, the card Armiston had given him fluttered into that worthy's lap. Armiston closed his hand over it, chuckling again. Fate had given him the chance of preserving his incognito with this person as long as he wished. It would be a rare treat to get him ranting again about the author Armiston.' but armiston's host did not rant against his favorite author in fact he was so enthusiastic over that man's genius that the same qualities which he decried as a danger to society in his opinion only added lustre to the work benson asked his guest innumerable questions as to the personal qualities of his ideal and armiston shamelessly constructed a truly remarkable person the other listened entranced no i don't want to know him he said in the first place i haven't the time and in the second i'd be sure to start a row and then there is another thing if he is half the man i take him to be from what you say he wouldn't stand for people fawning on him and telling him what a wonder he is that's about what i should be doing i'm afraid oh said armiston he isn't so bad as that he is a-well a sensible chap with clean fingernails and all that you know and he gets a hair cut once every three weeks the same as the rest of us i'm glad to hear you say so mr Uh, benson fell to chuckling by gad he said here we have been talking with each other for an hour and i haven't so much as taken a squint at your card to see who you are he searched for the card armiston had given him call it brown said armiston lying gorgeously and with a feeling of utmost righteousness martin brown single read and write color white laced shoes and derby hat as the police say All right, Mr. Brown. Glad to know you. We will have some cigars. You have no idea how much you interest me, Mr. Brown. How much does Armiston get for his stories?" Every word he writes brings him the price of a good cigar. I should say he makes forty thousand a year. Hmph! That's better than Godal, his star creation, would bag as a thief, I imagine, let alone the danger of getting snipped with a pistol-ball on a venture. Armiston puffed up his chest and shot his cuffs again how does he get his plots? Armiston knitted his ponderous brows. There's the rub, he said. You can talk about so-and-so much a word until you are deaf, dumb, and blind. But after all, it isn't the number of words or how they are strung together that makes a story. It is the ideas, and ideas are scarce. I have an idea that I always wanted to have Armiston get a hold of, just to see what he could do with it. If you will pardon me, to my way of thinking, the really important thing isn't the ideas, but how to work out the details. "'What's your idea?' asked Armiston hastily. He was not averse to appropriating anything he encountered in real life and dressing it up to suit his taste. I'll pass it along to Armiston, if you say so. "'Will you? That's capital!' "'To begin with,' Mr. Benson said as he twirled his brandy-glass with long, lean, silky fingers, a hand Armiston thought he would not like to have handle him in a rage to begin with godal this thief is not an ordinary thief he is a highbrow he has made some big hauls he must be a very rich man now eh you see that he is quite real to me by this time i should say godal has acquired such a fortune that thieving for mere money is no longer an object what does he do sit down and live on his income not much he is a person of refined tastes, with an eye for the aesthetic. He desires art objects, rare porcelains, a gem of rare color, color set by Venvenuto Cellini, a Leonardo da Vinci. Did Godal steal the Mona Lisa, by the way? He is the most likely person I can think of, or perhaps a Gutenberg Bible. Treasures, things of exquisite beauty to look at, to enjoy in secret, not to show to other people. That is the natural development of this man, Godal. eh? splendid exclaimed armiston his enthusiasm getting the better of him have you ever heard of mrs billy wentworth asked benson indeed i know her well said armiston his guard down that you must surely have seen her white ruby white ruby i never heard of such a thing a white ruby exactly that's just the point neither have i but if godall heard of a white ruby the chances are he would possess it especially if it were the only one of its kind in the world. Gad, I do believe he would, from what I know of him. And especially, went on Benson, under the circumstances, you know the Wentworths have been round a good deal. They haven't been over-scrupulous in getting things they wanted. Now, Mrs. Wentworth, but before I go on with this weird tale, I want you to understand me. It is pure fiction, an idea for Armiston, and his wonderful Godal. I am merely suggesting the Wentworths as fictitious characters. "'I understand,' said Armiston. "'Mrs. Wentworth might very well possess this white ruby. Let's say she stole it from some potentate's household in the Straits' settlements. She gained admittance by means of the official position of her husband. They can't accuse her of theft. All they can do is steal the gem back from her. It is a sacred stone, of course. They always are in fiction stories.' and the usual tribe of jugglers rug peddlers and so on all disguised you understand have followed her to america seeking a chance not on her life not to commit violence of any kind but to steal that stone she can't wear it went on benson all she can do is hide it away in some safe place what is a safe place not a bank godal could crack a bank with his little finger so might these east indian fellows laboring under the call of religion Not in a safe. That would be folly." "'How, then?' put in Armiston eagerly. "'Ah, there you are. That's for Godall to find out. He knows, let us say, that these foreigners in one way or another have turned Mrs. Wentworth's apartments upside down. They haven't found anything. He knows that she keeps that white ruby in that house. Where is it?' "'Ask Godall. Do you see the point? Has Godall ever cracked a nut like that?' "'No.' "'Here he must be the cleverest detective in the world and the cleverest thief at the same time. Before he can begin thieving, he must make his blueprints." "'When I read Armiston,' continued Benson, "'that is the kind of problem that springs up in my mind. I am always trying to think of some knot this wonderful thief would have to employ his best powers to unravel. I think of some weird situation like this one. I say to myself, good, I will write that. I will be as famous as Armiston. I will create another Godal.' "'But,' he said with a wave of his hands, "'what is the result? I tie the knot, but I can't untie it. The trouble is, I am not a Godal, and this man Armiston, as I read him, is Godal. He must be, or else Godal would not be made to do the wonderful things he does.' Hello, New Haven already? Mighty sorry to have you go, old chap. Great pleasure. When you get to town, let me know. Maybe I will consent to meet Armiston.' Armiston's first care on returning to New York was to remember the providential loan by which he had been able to keep clean his record of never missing a train. He counted out the sum and bills, wrote a polite note, signed it Martin Brown, and dispatched it by messenger boy to J. Borden Benson, the Towers. The Towers, the address Mr. Benson's card bore, is an ultra-fashionable apartment hotel on Lower Fifth Avenue. It maintains all the pomp and solemnity of an English ducal castle. Armiston remembered having on a remote occasion taken dinner there with a friend, and the recollection always gave him a chill. It was like dining among ghosts of kings, so grand and funereal was the air that pervaded everything. Armiston, who could not forbear curiosity as to his queer benefactor, took occasion to look him up in the blue book and the club directory, and found that J. Borden Benson was quite some personage, several lines being devoted to him. This was extremely pleasing. Armiston had been thinking of that white ruby yarn it appealed to his sense of the dramatic he would work it up in his best style and on publication have a fine laugh on benson by sending him an autographed copy and thus waking that gentleman up to the fact that it really had been the great Armiston in person he had befriended and entertained what a joke it would be on benson thought the author not without an intermixture of personal vanity for even a genius such as he was not blind to flattery properly applied and Benson unknowingly had lighted on thick. "'And by gad,' thought the author, "'I will use the Wentworths as the main characters, as the victims of Godot. They are just the people to fit into such a romance. Benson put money in my pocket, though he didn't suspect it. Luckily he didn't know what shifts we popular authors are put to for plots.' Suiting the action to the words, Armiston and his wife accepted the next invitation they received from the Wentworths mrs wentworth be it understood was a lion hunter she was forever trying to gather around her such celebrities as armiston the author brackens the painter johansen the explorer and others armiston had always withstood her wiles he always had some excuse to keep him away from her gorgeous table where she exhibited her lions to her simpering friends there were many undesirables sitting at the table idle rich youths girls of the fast hunting set and so on and they all gravely shook the great author by the hand and told him what a wonderful man he was. As for Mrs. Wentworth, she was too highly elated at her success in roping him for sane speech, and she fluttered about him like a hysterical bridesmaid. But Armiston noted with relief one of his pals was there, Johansen. Over cigars and cognac he managed to buttonhole the explorer. "'Johansson,' he said, "'you have been everywhere.' "'You are mistaken there,' said Johansson." I have never before to-night been north of fifty-ninth Street in New York. Yes, but you have been in Java and Ceylon and the settlements. Tell me, have you ever heard of such a thing as a white ruby? The explorer narrowed his eyes to a slit and looked queerly at his questioner. That's a queer question, he said in a low voice, to ask in this house. Armiston felt his pulse quicken. Why? he asked, assuming an air of surprised innocence. "'If you don't know,' said the explorer shortly, "'I certainly will not enlighten you.' "'All right, as you please. "'But you haven't answered my question yet. "'Have you ever heard of a white ruby?' "'I don't mind telling you that I have heard of such a thing. "'That is, I have heard there is a ruby in existence "'that is called the white ruby. "'It isn't really white, you know. "'It has a purplish tinge. "'But the old heathen who rightly owns it "'likes to call it white.' Just as he likes to call his blue and gray elephants white, who owns it? Asked Armisen, trying his best to make his voice sound natural. To find in this manner that there was some parallel for the mystical white ruby of which Benson had told him appealed strongly to his superdeveloped dramatic sense. He was now as keen on the scent as a hound. Johansen took to drumming on the tablecloth. He smiled to himself and his eyes glowed. Then he turned and looked sharply at his questioner. I suppose, he said, that all things are grist to a man of your trade. If you are thinking of building a story round the White Ruby, I can think of nothing more fascinating. But, Armiston, he said, suddenly altering his tone and almost whispering, if you are on the track of the White Ruby, let me advise you now to call off your dogs and keep your throat whole. I think I am a brave man. I have shot tigers at ten paces. Held my fire purposely to see how charmed a life I really did bear. I have been charged by mad rhinos and by wounded buffaloes. I have walked along a clearing where the air was being punctured with bullets as thick as holes in a mosquito screen. But, he said, laying his hand on Armiston's arm, I have never had the nerve to hunt the white ruby. Capital! exclaimed the author. Capital, yes for a man who earns his bread and gets his excitement by sitting at a typewriter and dreaming about these things but take my word for it it isn't capital for a man who gets his excitement by doing this thing hands off my friend it really does exist then Johansen puckered his lips so they say he said what's it worth worth what do you mean by worth dollars and cents what is your child worth to you a million a billion how much tell me no you can't well that's just what this miserable stone is worth to the man who rightfully owns it now let's quit talking nonsense there's Billy Wentworth shooing the men into the drawing-room I suppose we shall be entertained this evening by some of the hundred-dollar-a-minute song words as usual It's amazing what these people will spend for mere vulgar display when there are hundreds of families starving within a mile of this spot." Two famous singers sang that night. Armiston did not have much opportunity to look over the house. He was now fully determined to lay the scene of his story in this very house. At leave-taking, the sugar-sweet Mrs. Billy Wentworth drew Armiston aside and said, "'It's rather hard on you to ask you to sit through an evening with these people. I will make amends by asking you to come to me some night when we can be by ourselves are you interested in rare curios yes we all are i have some really wonderful things i want you to see let us make it next tuesday with a little informal dinner just for ourselves armiston then and there made the lion hunter radiantly happy by accepting her invitation to sit at her board as a family friend instead of as a lion as he put his wife into their automobile he turned and looked at the house it stood opposite central park it was a copy of some french chateau in gray sandstone with a barbican and overhanging towers and all the rest of it the windows of the street floor peeped out through deep embrasures and were heavily guarded with iron lattice-work will have the very devil of a time breaking in there he chuckled to himself late that night his wife awakened him to find out why he was tossing about so that white ruby has got on my nerves he said cryptically and she thinking he was dreaming persuaded him to try to sleep again great authors must really live in the flesh at times at least the lives of their great characters otherwise these great characters would not be so real as they are here was armiston who had created a superman in the person of godall the thief for ten years he had written nothing else he had laid the life of godall out in squares thought for him dreamed about him set him to new tasks, gone through all sorts of queer adventures with him. And this same Godal had amply repaid him. He had raised the author from the ranks of struggling amateurs to a position among the most highly paid fiction writers in the United States. He had brought him ease and luxury. Armiston did not need the money any more. The serial rights telling of the exploits of this Godal had paid him handsomely. The books of Godal's adventures had paid him even better, and had furnished him yearly with a never-failing income, like government bonds, but at a much higher rate of interest. Even though the crimes this Godal had committed were all on paper and almost impossible, nevertheless Godal was a living being to his creator. More, he was Armiston, and Armiston was Godal. It was not surprising, then, that when Tuesday came Armiston awaited the hour with feverish impatience here as his strange friend had so thoughtlessly and casually told him was an opportunity for the great godal to outdo even himself here was an opportunity for godal to be the greatest detective in the world in the first place before he could carry out one of his sensational thefts so it was godal not armiston who helped his wife out of their automobile that evening and mounted the splendid steps of the wentworth mansion he cast his eye aloft took in every inch of the facade no, he said, Godall cannot break in from the street. I must have a look at the back of the house. He cast his eyes on the ironwork that guarded the deep windows giving on the street. It was not iron, after all, but chilled steel sunk into armored concrete. The outposts of this house were as safely guarded as the vault of the United States Mint. It's got to be from the inside, he said, making mental note of the fact. The butler was stone deaf. This was rather singular. Why should a family of the standing of the Wentworths employ a man as head of their city establishment who was stone deaf? Armiston looked at the man with curiosity. He was still in middle age. Surely then he was not retained because of years of service. No, there was something more than charity behind this. He addressed a casual word to the man as he handed him his hat and cane. His back was turned, and the man did not reply armiston turned and repeated the sentence in the same tone the man watched his lips in the bright light of the hall a lip reader and a dandy thought armiston for the butler seemed to catch every word he said fact number two said the creator of godall the thief he felt no compunction at thus noting the most intimate details of the wentworth establishment an accident had put him on the track of a rare good story and it was all copy Besides, he told himself, when he came to write the story he would disguise it in such a way that no one reading it would know it was about the Wentworths. If their establishment happened to possess the requisite setting for a great story, surely there was no reason why he should not take advantage of that fact. The great thief—he made no bones of the fact to himself that he had come here to help Godal—accepted the flattering greeting of his hostess with a grand air that so well fitted him. Armiston was tall and thin with slender fingers and a touch of gray in his wavy hair for all his youthful years, and he knew how to wear his clothes. Mrs. Wentworth was proud of him as a social ornament, even aside from his glittering fame as an author. And Mrs. Armiston was well born, so there was no jar of their being received in the best house of the town. The dinner was truly delightful. Here Armiston saw, or thought he saw, one of the reasons for the deaf butler. The hostess had him so trained that she was able to catch her servant's eye and instruct him in this or that trifle by merely moving her lips. It was almost uncanny, thought the author, this silent conversation the deaf man and his mistress were able to carry on, unnoticed by the others. "'By gad, it's wonderful. Go to all my friend underscore that note of yours referring to the deaf butler. Don't miss it. It will take a trick.' armiston gave his undivided attention to his hostess as soon as he found wentworth entertaining mrs armiston and thus properly dividing the party he persuaded her to talk by a cleverly pointed question here and there and as she talked he studied her we are going to rob you of your precious white ruby my friend he thought humorously to himself and while we are laying our wires there is nothing about you too small to be worthy of our attention did she really possess the white ruby did this man benson know anything about the white ruby and what was the meaning of the strange actions of his friend johansen when approached on the subject in this house his hostess came to have a wonderful fascination for him he pictured this beautiful creature so avid in her lust for rare gems that she actually did penetrate the establishment of some heathen potentate in the straits simply for the purpose of stealing the mystic stone have you ever by any chance been in the straits he asked indifferently wait mrs wentworth said with a laugh as she touched his hand lightly i have some curios from the straits and i will venture to say you have never seen their like half an hour later they were all seated over coffee and cigarettes in mrs wentworth's boudoir it was indeed a strange place there was scarcely a single corner of the world that had not contributed something to its furnishing carvings of teak and ivory hangings of sweet-scented vegetable fibers lamps of jade queer little gods all sitting like buddha with their legs drawn up under them carved out of jade or sardonyx scarves of baroque pearls Darjeeling turquoises armiston had never before seen such a collection and each item had its story he began to look on this frail little woman with different eyes she had been and seen and done, and the tale of her life, which she had actually lived, outshone even that of the glittering rascal Godall, who was standing beside him now and directing his ceaseless questions. Have you any rubies, he asked. Mrs. wentworth bent before a safe from the wall with swift fingers. she whirled the combination, the keen eyes of Armiston followed the bright knob like a cat. Fact number three said the Godall in him as he mentally made note of the numbers five, eight. Seven four six. That's the combination Mrs. Wentworth showed him six pigeon blood rubies This one is pale he said carelessly holding a particularly large stone up to the light Is it true that occasionally they are found white? His hostess looked at him before answering He was intent on a deep red stone he held in the palm of his hand It seemed a thousand miles deep "'What a fantastic idea!' she said. She glanced at her husband, who had reached out and taken her hand in a naturally affectionate manner. "'Fact number 4,' mentally noted Armiston. "'Are you not in mortal fear of robbery, with all this wealth?' Mrs. Wentworth laughed lightly. "'That is why we live in a fortress,' she said. "'Have you never, then, been visited by thieves?' said the author boldly. "'Never,' she said. A lie, thought Armiston. Fact number 5. We are getting on swimmingly. "'I do not believe that even your Godal the Infallible could get in here,' Mrs. Wentworth said. "'Not even the servants enter this room. That door is not locked with a key, yet it locks.' "'I am not much of a housekeeper,' she said lazily. "'But such housekeeping as is done in this room is all done by these poor little hands of mine. No, most amazing!' May I look at the door? Yes, Mr. Godall, said this woman who had lived more lives than Godall himself. Armiston examined the door, this strange device that locked without a key, apparently, indeed, without a lock, and came away disappointed. Well, Mr. Godall, his hostess said tauntingly. He shook his head in perplexity. Most ingenious, he said, and then suddenly, Yet I will venture that if I turned Godal loose on this problem, he would solve it. "'What fun!' she cried, clapping her hands. "'You challenge him?' asked Armiston. "'What nonsense is this?' cried Wentworth, coming forward. "'No nonsense at all,' said Mrs. Wentworth. "'Mr. Armiston has just said that his Godal could rob me. Let him try, if he can.' If mortal man can gain the secret of ingress and egress of this room, I want to know it. I don't believe mortal man can enter this room." Armiston noticed a strange glitter in her eyes. "'Gad! she was born to the part! What a woman!' he thought, and then aloud, "'I will set him to work. I will lay the scene of his exploit in, say, Hungary, where this room might well exist in some feudal castle.' "'How many people have entered this room "'since it was made the storehouse of all this wealth?' "'Not six, beside yourself,' replied Mrs. Wentworth. "'Then no one can recognize it if I describe it in a story. "'In fact, I will change the material details. "'We will say that it is not jewels Godal is seeking. "'We will say that it is a—' "'Mrs. Wentworth's hand touched his own. "'The tips of her fingers were cold. "'A white ruby,' she said. "'Gad, what a thoroughbred!' he exclaimed to himself, or to Godal, and then aloud, "'Capital! I will send you a copy of the story, Autographed!' The next day he called at the Towers and sent up his card to Mr. Benson's apartments. Surely a man of Benson's standing could be trusted with such a secret. In fact, it was evidently not a secret to Benson, who in all probability was one of the six Mrs. Wentworth said had entered that room.' Armiston wanted to talk the matter over with benson he had given up his idea of having fun with him by sending him a marked copy of the magazine containing his tale his story had taken complete possession of him as always had been the case when he was at work dispatching godall on his adventures if that ruby really exists Armiston said i don't know whether i shall write the story or steal the ruby for myself benson is right godall should not steal any more for mere money He is after rare, unique things now, and I am Godal. I feel the same way myself. A valet appeared, attired in a gorgeous livery. Armiston wondered why any self-respecting American would consent to don such raiment, even though it was the livery of the great Benson family. "'Mr. Armiston, sir,' said the valet, looking at the author's card he held in his hand. "'Mr. Benson sailed for Europe yesterday morning.' He is spending the summer in Norway. I am to follow on the next steamer. Is there any message I can take to him, sir? I have heard him speak of you, sir. Armiston took the card and wrote on it in pencil. I call to apologize. I am Martin Brown. The chance was too good to miss. You will pardon me, won't you? For the next two weeks, Armiston gave himself over to his dissipation, which was accompanying Godall on this adventure. It was a formidable task. The secret room he placed in a Hungarian castle, as he had promised. A beautiful countess was his heroine. She had seen the world, mostly in man's attire, and her escapades had furnished vivacious reading for two continents. No one could possibly connect her with Mrs. Billy Wentworth. So far it was easy. But how was Godal to get into this wonderful room where the countess had hidden this wonderful rare white ruby? the room was lined with chilled steel even the door this he had noted when he was examining that peculiar portal was lined with layers of steel it could withstand any known tool however armiston was armiston and godall was godall he got into that room he got the white ruby the manuscript went to the printers and the publisher said that armiston had never done anything like it since he started godall on his astonishing career he banked the cheque for his tail, and as he did so, he said, "Gad, I would a hundred times rather possess that white ruby. Confound the thing! I feel as if I had not heard the last of it." And of the infallible Godal, Part One.